Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with religious literacy specialist Benjamin Marcus and host Oren Slosberg, executive director of Commonweal, as they discuss the subject of religious studies in public education. Ben Marcus, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Um, we're talking today from the firehouse in San Francisco. And this is uh, Ben Marcus, who is a religious literacy specialist with the Religious Freedom Center of the Museum Institute. Did I say that right? Museum? Yes. Museum Institute, where he examines the intersection of education, religious literacy, and identity formation in the U.S. He has developed religious literacy programs for public schools, universities, U.S. government organizations, and private foundations. And he has delivered presentations on religion at universities and nonprofits in the U.S. and abroad. He's worked with the Foundation for Religious Literacy, the D.C. Public Schools, the Office of Religion and Global Affairs at the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See, the Vatican, the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the U.S. Department, at the U.S. State Department, and the Interfaith Youth Corps and the Cambridge Interfaith Program in the United Kingdom. Now, you've been busy. Mm -hmm. um, last year, um, Benjamin was awarded a grant from the Germanicos Foundation to write lesson plans about religion for public secondary schools and to convene a regional conference on religious literacy pedagogies with teachers, administrators, subject matter experts, and professional consultants. Wow. <laughs> That's a good start. Um, that almost said what it is that you do, but maybe you can just kind of give us in a nutshell kind of like, um, what is it that you're doing at the museum and with the religious um, literacy, as a religious literacy specialist. Sure, so as the religious literacy specialist at the Religious Freedom Center, I work across our different programs to mm -hmm. think about what types of content knowledge and skills different professionals need in mm -hmm. order to be effective at their jobs in thinking about religion's role in private and public life and mm -hmm. engaging religious communities. So primarily right now I work with educators. So mm -hmm. I think about how we can train, equip educators to teach about religion in public schools and to mm -hmm. protect the First Amendment rights of people of all religions and none in the school environment. So mm -hmm. thinking about not only religion in the public school classroom in terms of the curriculum, but also how do we make sure that people of all religions and none feel welcome in public mm -hmm. schools. So I work with educators, I also work with uh, religious and civic leaders. We work with diplomats and government officials, lawyers, journalists are mm -hmm. some of our main, the main communities that we target. Is there a difference between teaching about religion and teaching religion? Yes, that's a great question. So we use the word about very intentionally. So teaching religion, we think of as a confessional exercise. Mm -hmm. It's something that we're familiar with when we're in mosques or synagogues or churches. Mm -hmm. um, temples. So that's what is often done within religious communities to try to inculcate a sense of religious conviction or identity right. among people. Teaching about religion is an academic exercise. Mm -hmm. So it's not meant to promote or denigrate religion. It's not meant to make people conform to any one religion or to impose any way of being religious. It's meant to educate, build mm -hmm. awareness, expose people to different perspectives. So it is what's done in the American Academy and right. the field that we call religious studies. Well, there's a lot of questions that come up around teaching religion in these days, but I think first maybe there's the whole question of um, 
church and state, which I'm sure is the first thing that everybody asks. It's like, how can you teach religion in a public school? Because the public school is a government entity and religions are not in, in, included in it. So it, it is legal to teach about religion in school. But yeah, that's right. So that's a question that comes up a lot is, right. can you teach about religion? Uh, is this legal? Are you trying to impose any one way of being religious? And so we often go back to a Supreme Court case called Abington v. Shemp mm-hmm. when there was a very famous decision that was handed down that affirmed that not only is it legal, constitutional to teach about religion in public schools, but they even went so far as to say that a well-rounded program of study that tries to understand history and culture mm-hmm. would be remiss if it didn't right. include the study of religion. So we talk about Abington v. Shemp. There have been many... Uh, sort of cases, but also just community meetings between people across the religious and ideological mm-hmm. political spectrum affirming that you can teach about religion. Right. And so uh, it certainly is legal. And then the follow-up question that people yeah. often ask is, are you trying to convert students? And so there was actually a, a great study that was done in this state where we are in California. There is a public school district in Modesto, mm-hmm. which is the only district that we know of uh, still that mandates world religions classes for all students who graduate. And so in Modesto, there was a study that was done to look at how it was affecting religiosity Mm -hmm. of students and also their uh, willingness to stand up for the rights of people with whom they disagree. And what the study found was that uh, students' religiosity wasn't meaningfully affected Mm -hmm. by taking these classes. They weren't becoming more or less religious. But they were becoming more, they, were, they recognized more the rights of people with whom they disagree. There was still a challenge That's in the study. Cool. They were finding that uh, people's active participation in protecting mm-hmm. other people's rights wasn't where we might want it to be in terms of civic education, but they were recognizing that right. And so mm-hmm. that's still something that we're trying to work through. What's the best course of study that mm-hmm. uh, empowers young citizens or young people growing up in a religiously diverse world to stand up for the rights of, pe- of others while also not trying to convert them. So in some ways, thinking about <clears throat> religion in a school setting, and we're saying school, we mean like K through 12, mm-hmm. basically, um, it is a certain awareness of difference, the way one teaches about different cultures. Right. Is that kind of a, a parallel way of thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people put religious studies education in with multicultural studies mm-hmm. education. Uh, that's one way that a lot of people think about it. So trying to make sure that um, f- that we're recognizing the diversity and the mm-hmm. growing religious diversity in the United States uh, as a fact, right? Not taking necessarily a stand on what that means, although we certainly recognize that yeah. as a strength. Um, We often couch it in the language of civic education. So there is a very influential framework by the National Council for the Social Studies called the C3. And those Mm -hmm. C3s, those three Cs stand for college, career, and civic readiness. Mm -hmm. So we see religious studies as fitting within that C3 framework. How do we prepare students for college to understand how the world works and sort of to be able to engage in academic disciplines? You have to know something about religion. In terms of career, because we live in an increasingly religiously diverse world, um, people's careers will be 
successful or not, depending on how effective they are at working with people who are different from mm-hmm. them. And one of those lines of difference might be religion. Right. And for civic readiness, you know, we live in a religiously diverse nation that in our First Amendment protects non-establishment and free exercise. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as people living within the United States, what does it mean to recognize religious diversity and have the skills to be able to navigate that? So over the last year, there's been a lot more awareness of the Islamophobia that's happening mm-hmm. around the country. And I'm just, I mean, there's the obvious way which you're saying is that if you teach about Islam at schools, they'll be more tolerant, maybe less fear of people that are um, Muslim. Um, but I'm wondering how that affects your work and affects your mission, because there's very much lack of awareness. And in many communities, there's not a presence of the Islamic faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does, let's say, the change in, let's say, Islamophobia, or you know, if you were to go 70, 80 years ago, maybe anti-Semitism, how does that affect your work? Well, it certainly gives it greater urgency. And I would say mm-hmm. that anti-Semitism still is at the forefront in our minds as well. Uh, the FBI just this last week released the hate crime statistics for 2016. And we've seen over the last two years, certainly, and, and more, but especially in the last two years, an increase in religion-related hate crimes. The uh, most frequent target of religion-related hate crimes in the United States are Jews. Uh, it more might be that most, it's wow. the most uh, reported, but it still is the by far the um, greatest number of targets are are Jews. And Muslims are also very high up there. So there's an increase across the uh, Muslims, Jews, and then we've also seen um, anecdotally and with some um, reporting by other organizations, Mm -hmm. uh, increase in religion-related hate crimes against uh, Hindus and Sikhs, sometimes because of sort of the conflation of religious identity and racial identity, sometimes because people... Uh, conflate Islam with Hinduism and Sikhism. So that is absolutely a, uh, motivates us even more to do Mm -hmm. the work that we do. Although we want to be careful to not make it only about responding to acts of violence, Mm -hmm. right? We want to be forward thinking and presenting a positive vision about how do we teach students to live productively and Mm -hmm. in and with diversity. I know that you wrote lesson plans, right? Yeah. So have they changed over the last year? Not substantially. Uh, it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. So we continue to write lesson plans based on the need that we're hearing uh, in terms of what teachers are looking for. Right. A lot of the challenge comes uh, from the fact that many teachers don't have the luxury of teaching about religion as a separate subject, so there aren't a lot of religious studies electives. There's no standardized tests in religion? No, there's not. <laughs> so what ends up having to happen is that teachers have to integrate the study yeah. of religion across the curriculum, which we actually right. see as a positive good. I think right. you should be integrating the study of religion. So in doing that, we have to find entry points in existing curriculum, and so mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have a unit on hate right. crimes, but they do have units on, in literature, on books like mm-hmm. Night by Elie Wiesel, or Life of Pi, or, um, or Number of the Stars, all sorts of books uh, right. that have some sort of religion component. Or they have, um, in history lessons, they mm-hmm. look at the rise of Islam in a unit about world history, right. or a, a class about world history, or they have 
a civil rights class, and so within the civil rights unit, you might have some lesson on the role mm-hmm. of religious communities in the right. civil rights movement. So we're more tied to existing curricula than we are to contemporary issues, for right. example. And is there much resistance from educators? I'm just projecting everything that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could imagine onto this, but I can imagine some... I mean, other than the First Amendment one, let's assume mm-hmm. that the legal issue um, is not the first thing, but that's easily addressed because there's enough precedent for that. Mm-hmm. Is there resistance around teaching other faiths? I mean, like in a community that is predominantly one religion or the other. I mean, in this country, there are many districts and schools where the students, the teachers, the admin, the parents are all of the Christian faith. Yeah. And is there a resistance to talking about other religions? And is that a, I mean, as you mentioned before, there's a fear of confusion, but there's, you know, there's probably a good chance that the teachers themselves are not as aware or as informed about other world religions. Right. Well, as you know, the education system in the United States is just completely decentralized. So it's really hard to speak about a general uh, experience. And Mm -hmm. so just in this conference, for example, I'm here for a conference and we've heard teachers already talk about how incredibly different it is to be teaching at a public school in rural Arizona versus a public school in Kentucky versus a public school in DC. Uh, Those are just extremely different contexts. And so whereas in some more urban or diverse suburban districts, there might be um, more interest in learning about different religious mm-hmm. traditions because classrooms are a bit more diverse. In more rural school districts, there might be a greater concentration of one religious community. And mm-hmm. certainly there are right. some public school classrooms in urban districts that are completely Christian or completely Jewish. So it doesn't always track on suburban, urban, rural, but right. there is certainly a diversity. and so. Whereas we go into some schools and they're mm-hmm. excited to talk about religion. Teachers have some maybe training in religious studies uh, and they understand the difference between the academic study of religion and the devotional study of religion. Right. We'll go into other schools and they just won't really understand that difference. Click, yeah. So we were just hearing the story of some public schools want to go to the, there's a, a museum called, or I guess a experience called the Ark Encounter that was funded by private funds that's a life-size, they say, replica of Noah's Ark, and you go in and sort of hear about the Christian story through this Mm -hmm. um, museum, and it's very confessional. You know, this is not an academic study of religion. Uh, And so what do you do when you have teachers who want to teach about religion through a museum like that? How do you navigate that? and so there are challenges. Yeah. What we are finding, and I have to say that this is not—I don't think this is not universal—but we don't have a ton of people say we won't teach about religion. That certainly mm-hmm. does happen. There are right. people who don't want to because they don't want to get sued. But for the most part, what we've experienced—and it might be sort of a sample bias—but people are interested, mm-hmm. but they come at it from very different angles. And mm-hmm. so that's the biggest challenge when people are motivated, but aren't necessarily trained in religious studies or as open to thinking about new ways to, mm-hmm. to teach about religion. So when teachers or districts or educators approach you, are they from a specific area? I mean, would you say that they come from more areas that are more observant or from more you know, red states, blue states, left-leaning, right-leaning, central environments, or just like across the board? It really is across the board. Really? Um, we have 
you know, so the center that I work with, we've worked with DC Public Schools, which is an mm-hmm. urban district. We've worked with a suburban district outside Chicago and District 214. We've worked, right now we have a, a major program in the state of Georgia where we're working with a urban school district and a mm-hmm. very rural school district. The urban school district is sort of a third, a third, a third white, Hispanic, and black and, the, and religiously diverse. And the rural district is almost 100% white, very uh, mm-hmm. predominantly Christian. Uh, we've worked with schools in Utah, schools in Oklahoma, California, uh, right now in Texas, the, the Houston Integrated School District has some interest in learning about religion. We don't work primarily with them, but one of our partners does. So mm-hmm. there, it's really across the United States, there's quite a great deal of interest. But each yeah. of those states, each of those communities within those states has a completely different demographic right. and context. I think that's one of the, you know, one of the challenges of the American education system is that it's so decentralized. Yeah. But it's also one of its blessings. Yeah, right. Because there's a, there's a professor at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Dr. Zhao, who talks about how the American education system, because it's so decentralized, actually allows for a lot more creativity and innovation because mm-hmm. there's more, you know, a teacher has more control. So if a right. teacher is interested in a specific thing, then they can actually bring it to the classroom while in other places where there's more of a standardized curriculum, you can't really do it. So mm-hmm. then on the other hand, because it's so decentralized, it's hard to do something on right. a very large scale. I, I think that's absolutely right. One can imagine how almost impossible it would be if the federal government or right. even a state government tried to impose one religious studies curriculum on every school, right. how many disasters that would create. Right? Right. <laughs> um, you'd have communities up in arms for very different reasons. Yeah. And so there's a need to adjust, not necessarily in the frameworks that you use, you mm-hmm. want to be academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate, no matter what the context is, but how you, uh, you know, approach those topics, what sources you use, how you frame it in terms mm-hmm. of the way that you ease the students into the right. discussion uh, will change. So are you, were you a teacher? Uh, not in public schools. So I've taught at different levels. Right now, mm-hmm. through the center, I teach two classes yeah. to teachers, um, but I haven't taught in a public school. So you talk about it with such passion. I'm just wondering how one, and how, how do you end up doing this work? Yeah, well, I'm the product of, of public schools. Um, I grew up outside of Chicago. My father is a humanist Jew from New York, uh, and his family historically mm-hmm. is from Eastern Europe. My Mom is from the Chicago area. She's a good Italian Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. And um, you weren't starving, that's for sure. <laughs> we ate a lot and uh, had a lot of yeah, family celebrations. And so I grew up exposed to both. Mm-hmm. My brother and I were both exposed to both with the idea that we would be able to choose for ourselves what oh, what really? made sense for us. So we, you know, went through a lot of rituals on both sides, celebrated holidays on both sides. And for me, that was always really interesting. I was really curious about religion. I saw that there were sometimes tensions between my parents who have a wonderful relationship, but certainly when topic of religion came up, when the topic of God came up, they Mm -hmm. had some pretty fraught discussions. And so I just wanted to understand 
what was motivating them? You know, why mm-hmm. was religion, this topic that I only sort of sort of understood, uh, creating this tension in my in my family? And I remember very clearly when I was seven and was going through First Communion, we were in the church, in this Catholic church near my house, and the priest asked uh, me to come up to take communion, and he also asked my family to come up with me. And so my mom came up, my grandparents were there, and my dad, and this is literally the only time I can remember him being in a church outside of Europe where we were looking at art. This right. is, I don't remember him being in a church otherwise, and uh, I was just so disturbed. You know, I was a seven-year-old, right. and this was me time, and my dad wasn't coming, and I just couldn't understand why. And so afterward, he came up to me and tried to explain to seven-year-old me about the history of the abuse of Jews by the Catholic Church, which is something that he felt very strongly (laughs) about. And that growing up in Long Island, which they weren't, he was mostly in a Protestant community, how he was called Mm -hmm. slurs uh, um, being a Jew by Christians. And so he couldn't bring himself to take part in this ritual, even in a passive way. And so... Uh, that was something that sort of stuck in my mind as, as mm-hmm. a point at which I thought, wow, there's something here about religion that's really fascinating and within me that I want to understand more. But I didn't really know that I would do religion. I thought I was going to study medieval studies, so I was really interested in history. I went to college. I had applied as a medieval studies concentrator. Mm-hmm. And in order to understand the medieval period, I knew I had to know something about religion. Right. So I started taking some religious studies classes and that's, I just fell in love. So I ended up taking more religious studies classes and probably a bit uh, selfishly wanted to focus Mm -hmm. specifically on religious identity. How do people conceive of themselves as religious? What does that actually mean to them? And has this work affected your religious identity? It's helped me understand my religious identity Mm -hmm. more. So... I always feel paralyzed when I see a form that asks me to list my religious identity. I don't know what to put. Yeah. And one story that I've learned in the work that I do that to me feels so resonant is the story of a Catholic cardinal in Europe, and I can't remember his name, but uh, there's a documentary about him. And he was born into a Jewish family as a Jew and was saved by the kinder transport in World Mm -hmm. War II and was taken in by a Catholic family. And he always knew that he was Jewish, so it wasn't like this was an unknown part of his identity. But he ended up converting to Catholicism and uh, became a cardinal. cardinal. And so he said throughout his life that, yes, he was a Catholic cardinal, but he never stopped being Jewish, that that was a part of him, that he, he couldn't stop being Jewish somehow. So I feel that way... I think for me, I, I, in the work that I do, so mm-hmm. I talk about these three Bs. This is right. sort of my contribution, I think, is thinking about religious identity, not only about belief, but also mm-hmm. about behavior and belonging. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that other people have talked about in different ways. But for me, in the United States often, and in part because of the history of Protestant influence, right. we think that religion and faith and belief are synonymous, that... Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about faith traditions, interfaith dialogue, faith formation. We talk about belief systems or right. uh, faith-based organizations. So it's just ingrained in our consciousness that religion is at its root about belief. 
And so when you have someone like me who grows up with Catholic, you know, a Catholic mother and Jewish father, it's necessarily a warring mm-hmm. set of systems, right? That I can't be both Catholic and Jewish because I can't be, I can't hold two belief systems. You can't that, belong to two? Right. Okay. Well, no, you can't. So that's, that's in the, I think the commons conception, you can't be both because the beliefs don't okay. mix. For me, the way that I've reconciled these is to think, my beliefs might fall in one place, but my belonging might fall in another. Or maybe I have multiple mm-hmm. intersecting uh, communities of belonging and that right. my behaviors might be informed by these two and that I might hold some beliefs from here and some beliefs from there, but that religious identity isn't just about belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it was, then I don't know how I would really tell my story to myself. Of, right. Who I am. Of course, Judaism and Catholicism have some very strong connections between them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I grew up in Israel uh-huh. where religion and national identity and beliefs and faith are all jumbled together, where the right. lines between them are sometimes very sharp and at other times are very much obscured. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that religion is taught in Israel has struggled with similar things, mm-hmm. though the struggle in some way has been more challenging because religion is so much ingrained in the creation of, let's say, the Jewish state um, and other nations around. Mm-hmm. And we were taught Bible mm-hmm. every day wow. for my entire public education. Um, though once in high school, the approach was very academic. Mm. So there was a struggle in how do you explore a document like the Bible, mm-hmm. both from, you know, in a country that is that has a religious doctrine, the state of Israel identifies itself as a Jewish state, mm-hmm. which has its issues within itself, but in public education, the Bible is taught, but it was in my specific school taught actually as an academic document. Mm. So when I was studying the Bible, I was studying it through the eyes of um, biblical scholars that were not necessarily orthodox, mm, mm. which is a whole different lens, right. which was, um, I think, affected one's relationship to that document. Before it was taught academically, was was there pushback from either religious or secular communities in the interpretation that was taught of the Bible? Um, so the town I grew up in was very secular. I grew up in mm. Haifa. So there wasn't as much um, religious dogma as there might be in other places. I think things might have changed in the last 30 years. Mm. So there wasn't pushback because at the beginning it was, so my public education was in the 70s. There was a lot of, the celebration of the religion was caught up with the celebration of the nation. Right. And so Jewish holidays were celebrated as national holidays. Right. With time, as political extremism grew in the region, I mean, there's not only you know Islamic radicalism, there's Jewish radicalism, and one could argue that there's also Christian radicalism in some places. Um, I think that there might have been a reaction from the secular world to push back on that, which I would expect to happen here as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine that in a secular district or a secular community, it would be easier to teach about religion through an academic lens. You know, it'd be a little trickier to talk about, let's say, Christianity academically in an environment that has a more, let's say, evangelical or a more um, devout kind of community. It can be tricky if you're not upfront about what you're trying Mm -hmm. to do, right? So I think if you're clear that you're not promoting any one view, but you're trying to expose multiple, as one of my colleagues says, authentic but not exclusive Mm -hmm. perspectives on 
these different religious traditions or one religious tradition and different interpretations within it, uh, then they see that it's actually in their interest mm -hmm. often that the state isn't taking one view because mm -hmm. in their town, if they can impose one way of interpreting religion, then it opens the door for in another town, which has mm -hmm. a very different religious makeup, to impose another interpretation. Right. So it's sort of a the um, power of of the majority, right? The tyranny of right. the majority. And you, so you don't want that in any right. context. So we're, we say, um, quoting, I can't remember who said this originally, but it's not religious freedom for all. Mm -hmm. And sorry, it's not religious freedom at all unless, it, unless it's religious freedom it's for, for all. all. Yeah. So that's, that's really the basis of how we right. tell the story. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Benjamin Marcus and Oren Slosberg. One of my mentors, the founding director of the Religious Freedom Center, Charles Haynes, is a huge fan of Roger Williams. Mm -hmm. And so Roger Williams, as you know, uh, ended up being expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and started Rhode Island. Right. And it wasn't because he... Um, didn't believe. It was because he believed so strongly and so fervently mm -hmm. uh, and so particularly that it ticked off the, the, the clergy people right. in Massachusetts. And so he started Rhode Island and set it up as the first place in history that had complete religious freedom, right? And so it, there's, uh, I think, a power to the story that this mm -hmm. experiment, he called it a lively experiment in religious freedom, really came from an extremely devout right. Christian. So that. devout yeah. that actually there were times when he refused to eat meals with his wife because she he thought she wasn't being devout enough. Wow. So, so this was a person who was very devout but thought that this soul conscience um, mm -hmm. should be protected for all people because right. there shouldn't be compulsion in religion. And so that, I think, is a helpful story to tell. That it's a great it's story. Being... A proponent of religious freedom for all, including those with whom you disagree, is a protection for yourself as much as it, as it is for, for other people. Right. We're not free until everybody's free. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that why the first synagogue in the U.S. was founded in Rhode Island? Yeah, Torah Synagogue. Torah Synagogue. Mm -hmm. I, I always wondered why it was that Rhode Island had the first synagogue, but that does explain it. Um, on a similar related question, um, some of the conversations that I hear in San Francisco, especially among younger people in their 20s and 30s, is how religion is playing a less significant role in their life. Mm -hmm. And there's a, um, there's a search for meaning that religion used to provide. Mm -hmm. So maybe 100 years ago when religion was accepted as, was, religion was part of daily life. Mm -hmm. um, it provided a source of, morals, ethics, values, a certain mm -hmm. way of being, but now that religion doesn't have that same place. I mean, I think attendance at churches and synagogues has dropped dramatically over mm -hmm. the last 50 years. Um, there's a lot more secularism. I think atheism is the second biggest religion in the United States, or third, something like that. Or is it the biggest, if one could call it a religion? Yeah, so, so the religious landscape in the United States is very complicated. There, the resource that I would recommend most highly mm -hmm. is from the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. Mm -hmm. uh, they just released a new updated U.S. religious landscape map that's interactive. You can go online and play with it and click on states and see what the religious landscape in your state is. They've seen a number of trends mm -hmm. over the past 
Chuck it, you're more. One story is the story of the decline of white Christian America. Mm-hmm. So the, the head of the PRR, PRRI wrote this book called The End of White Christian America. And essentially, for the first time in U.S. history, Protestant Christians don't make up more than 50% of the population. So Protestant Christians are now less than 50%. Um, and specifically, across the board, white Protestant Christian groups are in mm-hmm. decline. There has been some increase in other types of Protestant Christian groups, in part due to immigration, for example. Another big story in religious in the religious landscape is the rise of the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And so they have a really great infographic called America the Diverse. You can Google that. And what it shows is that by age group, the proportion of the population that is unaffiliated Mm -hmm. has increased dramatically. So in 65 plus, it's quite small. And by the time you look at 18 to Mm 29-year-olds, there's a tremendous increase in the number of unaffiliated Americans. And unaffiliated is not about identity, but it's actual belonging to a religious community. So it's saying, you know, it's in their battery of questions, Mm -hmm. they ask, how do you identify? And they might say they're unaffiliated. And so being unaffiliated Within that, there's an incredible diversity, right? So there are some who are atheists. There are some who are agnostics. Mm-hmm. Um, a very popular category for people to self-identify as spiritual but not religious. Right. And so uh, atheists are, there is a growing, there are a growing number of atheists mm-hmm. in the United States, but it's certainly not an incredibly high percentage. The U.S., especially compared to quote-unquote Western countries like Western mm-hmm. Europe, is still quite religious compared, um, to, yeah. compared to those other Western European con- or Western European countries. But there is a rise in the number of unaffiliated. And so mm-hmm. the question is sort of what will happen? How is that affecting right. the, the landscape? We know from research that people who, uh, for whom religion is very important in their lives, yeah. who score high on religiosity indexes, indices, are um, quite often more active in in volunteer work, in charitable Mm -hmm. work. Um, We know that actually PRRI, I saw a tweet two days ago that was, they asked, are you spiritual and are you religious? And among those who, or not, and among those who said spiritual and religious, their happiness was the highest. And among those who said they were neither spiritual nor religious, Mm -hmm. their happiness was lowest. And I would have to go back and check that. And then there was, I think it was that people who are spiritual but not religious were more happy than people who are religious but not spiritual. spiritual. I think that was the breakdown. (laughs) I would have to go back and look. So don't maybe post that without fact checking that. Um, But yeah, I think that, so Mm -hmm. so the question is, you know, what do you do with that information? And certainly what we don't want to do is characterize people who are neither spiritual nor religious as morally inferior or depressed, or depressed <laughs> right? So that's certainly not yeah. always the case. Um, but the question is, what for me right. is the therefore is what do religious communities provide mm-hmm. that are not that that's not being filled? That's a by, very interesting question to me. Yeah. I mean, because we see a lot of you know the nuns mm-hmm. um, and, and say even people up to their forties that are in search for questions that religion used to answer. Mm-hmm. You know, questions of meaning, questions of belonging, of association. Um, and, I, when, and I wonder about how does that affect us down the line? And, you know, to connect with your other work is that this is also the generation that has kids in schools. Right. So what is their reaction? I know that there's a certain generation that has an, an, almost an anti-feeling towards religion, mm-hmm. you know, reacting to maybe conservativeness of their parents. But now that it's another generation... Um, 
to me, it's very interesting, both kind of like how the nuns and millennial generation is dealing with their own identity and belonging, and how does that affect their relationship with religion in schools? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's one of the questions I think that religious studies scholars are interested in. And also people who are either religious themselves or people who aren't religious but are seeking religious mm-hmm. types of communities. So there's a fascinating project out of uh, a few graduates of Harvard Divinity School who are looking at what does Casper it mean and to... Angie? Yeah, Casper and Andy. So they're looking at, right, they have the very popular uh, Harry Potter as a Sacred Text podcast, mm-hmm. looking at how you create uh, practices of reading that mimic or that mm-hmm. draw on the wisdom of practices of reading that come out of religious communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but looking at, at Harry Potter, um, they did an interesting report on different types of communities that people find and to what extent are these religious or not, right? So right. things like Soul Cycle or CrossFit. Right. Um, and, and so it's a very contentious debate. Are those right. things actually on par with religious communities? A lot of people say no because, you know, the, the common question of who shows up at your funeral, who will bury you, right? Is your CrossFit right. community going to bury you? Will they show up at your funeral? Will they pay your funeral expenses or um, will they pay healthcare expenses? Uh, so if that's your metric of right. to what extent is this religious, how how strong are the bonds, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know. So so right. that I think people are trying to figure that out. What does it mean to be, especially in a very diverse country, where people fear the freedom is the freedom of disaffiliation, not the freedom mm-hmm. of affiliation. affiliation. Yeah. And so what do you do then? You know, how do you encourage new kinds of mm-hmm. affiliation that are positive and constructive? Right. And do those new, I mean, it, it sounds like there's some new sense of, that the word religion may not articulate it since religion seems to be associated with some of, you know, the more, I don't know, Abrahamic traditions, Buddhist traditions, the larger religions that we mm-hmm. hear of that often have to do with some kind of divine entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the new um, affiliations may not necessarily use that as a factor. And it's curious to me when someone says they're spiritual, not religious, right. what that actually means. And I'm not too sure that I know the answer to it. And whether these new associations provide that spiritual connection. Right. You know. Well, so I, my sort of running framework is are these yeah. three Bs. So when I hear spiritual but not religious, what I automatically think is that they're signaling to me that they believe, but they don't mm-hmm. belong and they don't necessarily behave in certain um, prescribed ways. Right. And so what does it mean to believe and not belong? There was mm-hmm. an interesting book. Uh, I'm not the first person to use these three Bs, so Grace Davy, uh, as a scholar in the UK, she wrote a seminal book called Believing Without Belonging about mm-hmm. the UK system and how people um, had certain beliefs that might be familiar to us as Christian, mm-hmm. but that they weren't going to church, for example. Right. Uh, and interestingly, she, I think it was her, there was a scholar who talked about, um, I really wish I remember the phrase, vicarious religion. That, they, <laughs> that was the phrase. So the, she, they, they wanted religion to exist. They didn't yeah. want the church down the road to close, right. but they didn't want to go to the church. They didn't want to go to the church, yeah. So what does that mean? Why, why do we have some sort of, um, why do we feel a... Uh, investments in mm-hmm. the existence of religious communities, even right. when we ourselves don't belong. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a question that I've wondered, and I've worked for a while in the Jewish community, and there's a certain set of people that have the sense of belonging, though it's not an active part of their life, and it usually manifests at, at specific life cycle events. 
most likely around death, mm-hmm. where often you may be you may be atheist, you may be agnostic, you may be secular, you may be spiritual, but when you die, you want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Mm-hmm. You know, as if there's somewhere in the back of one's mind this sense of belonging that doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's a really complex question, I think. Um, I had a, a high school teacher who I really love, but he... he um, it was the first person who introduced me to the phrase, there are no atheists in a foxhole, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some sort of paternalism in that, though, right. of thinking that everyone, when faced with sort of the extremities of life, turns to religion or finds God. Mm-hmm. And I think it is true that in those extremities, people tend to... Now, I don't know if tend, but in my experience there is a turn to tradition, whether it's religious tradition or not, because many people want to feel shepherded through those... They want to know the sort of divine presence or guidance or another force, yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Obviously, all humans face Mm -hmm. these rites of passage, face extreme situations, and so what will happen as more people disaffiliate? Where will they turn? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it's natural to turn to something, right? Right. There's a... There's a sense when you can't rely on yourself or um, sometimes your family or your community, there's a desire for some sort of stability often. Mm-hmm. And so where does that come from? Right. Yeah. I wonder how that plays out in, in high schools where I know that there's often one go through the existential crisis as they start to individuate from their family and from their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and religion could be an anchor to that, but I can imagine that a religious studies class would present some interesting conversation, like the conversation that we're having right now. I could just imagine that happening in high school. I'm not sure if it would be within the context of studying religion in an academic way, Mm. but... Yeah, well, (laughs) that's a really big challenge. When you teach about religion in schools, you don't want to artificially limit the Mm -hmm. conversations that students have in classes. So one thing we try to make clear is that students have free exercise rights. Right. They are not the agents of the state. When you're in a public right. school, the agent of the state is the teacher. So the teacher can't talk about, right. cannot teach religion just about religion, but the kids can study whatever they want. Right, they can study whatever <laughs> they want. They can talk confessionally, right? They can yeah. share their own experiences. They can learn from one, one another's experiences. Uh, that's why students can have religious clubs in a public school. You know, they have that right. They have the right to pray um, in public schools. They have the right to wear religious garb. So it's natural that when people mm-hmm. are talking about religion in a classroom, students will draw from their own experiences. Right. The, the role of the teacher is to facilitate a conversation that's respectful, mm-hmm. um, but also to hold the space for the academic study of religion and to say, when a student speaks, to, yeah. val- to, to recognize that student's experience, but to make sure that other students know that's not the only experience uh, within that tradition. Right. That'd be a, a challenging balance. I mean, I can imagine yeah. a, a conversations about questioning, like, does God exist or not? Mm-hmm. I could see that absolutely coming out of a class about Judaism or mm-hmm. most religions. Mm-hmm. That would take quite a skilled teacher. I mean, is that part of how you prep teachers? Do you prep them for questions like that? Yeah, well, that's, I think, one of the main challenges for religious studies education today is 
interest in the academic study of religion in schools goes through boom and bust cycles a bit. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in a bit of a boom. But the training for teachers has not caught up. So Mm -hmm. a lot of teachers go into schools where there's interest in teaching about religion or they have an interest in teaching about religion. But when they went through undergrad or teaching certification, they didn't take religious studies classes. So there are people who, there are people of goodwill, good intention, who just don't have the required academic background. It would be like going into a math class and having never taken math, right? right? It's just a difficult thing to teach a discipline without having training in the discipline. So that's what... We're trying to do in a small way. We offer these semester-long mm-hmm. classes for teachers who want to learn how to teach about religion, these online classes. So mm-hmm. we're trying to create a model where teachers right. anywhere in the country can get the training and resources that they need to teach about religion uh, or, or answer questions about mm-hmm. religion in public schools. Right. Like, what do you do with yoga and mindfulness meditation? What do you do with uh, school board policies? How, which, how should they be written to... to make all students feel welcome. So, so we're trying to be that late stage intervention, but right. what really needs to happen is that schools of education need to take up religious studies as an option right. of, of training for teachers. Right. And of course, schools of education are even more decentralized right. than the public school system. Right. Yeah. And we recognize that it's not yeah. an easy ask. In, in the age of high stakes testing, when right. Writing, reading, and math are what counts for school scores and things. Uh, it's hard mm-hmm. to give time to religious studies. Right. And I also don't want to say, you know, I think writing, reading, and math are really critical disciplines and people need to know how to read. But they also, if they're going to live in a diverse country, mm-hmm. need to know how to navigate that. And I think right, right now we're living in a moment where we're seeing the effects of the decline of civic education, of social studies education. Right. When we don't learn about the world around us, we have a lot of trouble keeping it together. And so yeah. there needs to be time. We need to make time for it. And, I mean, speaking of, of these times, we're about one year into President Trump's um, presidency. And I know that one of the things we're talking about is maybe creating a voucher system or a charter school system where religious schools are actually, potentially might be getting some public funding. And... Like that probably takes on a whole new way of outreach and teaching mm-hmm. about teaching about religion within a religious school context. Yeah, well, I have to say I'm I'm not a legal expert on voucher system. I think there are people that I know and respect who support the voucher system and don't, and it doesn't always follow along the partisan lines you think it will. Right. Generally, what we say is that the academic study of religion is an important skill, mm-hmm. whether you're in a public or a private school, yeah. and in part because it is non, um, and it does not indoctrinate, right? Mm-hmm. So it teaches students to learn about a subject. And by definition, does not indoctrinate. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. So, so uh, on Saturday, actually, I'm in just two days. I'm presenting, or I'm moderating a panel on this new document that I was the chair of a committee that wrote this companion document to the C3, which I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So it's the first time now, starting in June, that religious studies is considered one of eight disciplines in social studies that's that's promoted by the comment, uh, sorry, the C3 framework by the Mm -hmm. NCSS. So now there's this new period we're living in where a national education body has promoted the academic study of religion. And on this panel, which is a 
was created to mark the occasion. We have a public school teacher from Connecticut, and we also have the head of professional development for, the, for a, a Catholic education organization. And this Catholic education organization is thrilled to see the document. You know, this document is written for the academic study of religion. It does mm-hmm. not leave room for, um, for confessional religious education. But they see it as really critical in Catholic schools to have room for faith formation types mm-hmm. of schooling, but also to study religion academically. Right. And so I think that's certainly not true for all faith-based schools uh, or religious schools. But I think it's, it's true for many that, that the academic study of religion mm-hmm. is the best preparation for civic life right. given the fact of diversity. Especially, there, there's a lot of conversation now about how there's a lack of communication between the right and the left mm-hmm. in this country and that social media and news and, and leaders, whether political or not, are kind of deepening that divide. And it seems that teaching about religion might be a wonderful way to bridge that gap because it's something that can be talked about in somewhat of a neutral academic way, even though it underlies a lot of it, or at least it's perceived to underlie it. I mean, I'm not sure that you can say one side is more Christian or more Jewish than the other. I think that would be, that's just not true. But an academic study of it will allow insight to what, where the differences come from. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of reasons to study religion and part of it is to at least have conversations mm-hmm. that are that use the same um, language right so okay. oftentimes it just feels like we're talking past one another we're not even speaking yeah. languages that are mutually intelligible right. and it often comes up when we talk about legal issues mm-hmm. from my perspective there's not a lot of either understanding or intellectual honesty about Mm -hmm. the perspectives that we hold. And so I see religious literacy as as undergirding these civic discussions, including about the First Amendment. I I, I don't have any naivete about sort of thinking that if we teach about religion, everyone's going to agree how the First Amendment amendment applies in all situations. That's not going to happen. But hopefully, when we're having conversations about the First Amendment, when a really devout Christian is explaining their perspective on something, we don't fail to recognize the sincerity mm-hmm. of what it is that they're right. saying. We might disagree, an and, I, and I, I, I can understand why people might disagree, but at least we're having conversations right. that recognize the perspective that people have, right, that, that recognize where people are coming from and mm-hmm. what's at stake, that if we're going to make a decision that affects a religious or a secular, you mm-hmm. know, or an atheist community, that we don't minimize the impact that that decision will have. Right. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many other questions that I want to ask, mm-hmm. but I want to also give you time. It's like if people want to find out more information, they go to your website? Yeah, so we have a website, religiousfreedomcenter.org. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot there, I think, for people. Uh, we have a lot of resources 
for different types of professional communities. Our founding director spent decades, especially in the field of education. So we have a lot of resources for mm -hmm. educators for thinking about how to teach about religion, how to uh, answer common questions that you mm -hmm. might get as a teacher or administrator in public schools. So we have written resources, we have videos that might be of interest. And then we also have these classes. So the Religious Freedom Center, it's sort of, um, uh, premier flagship initiative is to offer semester-long courses, mm -hmm. some of which are online only and some of which mix online learning with an uh, intensive three-day immersion in Washington, D.C. And so these courses are open to anyone, but we have a track, especially for religious and civic leaders, and a track for educators. Uh, we're soon launching a... Uh, executive education seminars for business leaders. Oh, wow. And we'll be filming um, CLE, Continuing Legal Education uh, videos this spring. So we have these courses that, that people can sign up for. And for educators, we also recognize that not every school teacher has time to take a semester long course. Mm -hmm. So we're offering one hour long modules of professional development that they can take on sort of on demand um, questions or issues that might arise in their classroom, they can log on and, and, and complete those. And we try to make them engaging. So we know yeah. that a lot of PD is really boring. So we try to have a mixture of readings and videos and interactive games and discussions. And, mm -hmm. um, and people can see sample um, like lessons on your website mm -hmm. and so on. And yeah. So we're working, for example, with the Society of Biblical Literature. We have commissioned them to write some lesson plans that are academic in their mm -hmm. approach um, and that teach students not only content, but also how uh, scholars of the Bible approach the study of that, that text. Um, and then we'll be working with other organizations mm -hmm. to offer other kinds of lesson plans. So as a last question, you know, let's say we're sitting here in 10 years, mm -hmm. um, um, 15. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if, you're, if what you're doing now really sticks and really successful, what is a shift that you would see in, say, American culture? So the hope is that, at a minimum, it would reduce religion-related hostilities and certainly violence. Mm -hmm. So there is an assumption that's borne out by some research that learning about religion academically, like I said, doesn't... Uh, make people more or less religious, but it makes them less likely to engage in acts of violence. Um, and hopefully on the positive side, more likely right. to protect the rights of religious minorities. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the FBI has seen this rise in religion-related hate crimes. Hopefully we'd see a decline in that, right. uh, significant decline. That's a de minimis, sort of like mm -hmm. make people stop hurting each other. Yeah. I think more aspirationally, what we'd see is more people who recognize the role of religion in private and public life, mm -hmm. and therefore more able to speak in language that, when they're speaking to the public, or and especially if they're public servants, is more inclusive of the fact that we're a religiously diverse nation, is more inclusive of immigrant communities right. who are coming into the country who might not reflect the historical majority population mm -hmm. um, and that would recognize the importance of the First Amendment. I think right now religious freedom is a dirty word and it's a dirty right. word for a variety of or dirty words. Depends um, where, but... Yeah, well, but, but, but 
it is seen as having an agenda. Right. And what we would like to see is to at least come back to a place where th- there is recognition that, that mm-hmm. uh, religious freedom is important and that it, along with the other four rights that are in the First Amendment, should be valued as a cornerstone of our democracy. It's not just religious freedom. Freedom of speech, you know, freedom of press, we're seeing historic levels of people who don't trust the press. And so our First Amendment rights should be common ground. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to succeed as a country, then we need to recognize them as common ground and not as uh, swords, right? So we say religious freedom is a a shield, not a sword. How can we get back, and it might be sort of a semi-mythologized past, but so maybe how can we get to a place where the First Amendment is recognized by all people as, as uh, codifying certain inalienable rights? Even if we disagree on the implementation of those, we need to at least have a common ground of saying we value this. Right, it's foundational so, to the society, right. yeah. And so I think we're not at that place right now, and hopefully in 15 years, ten by, years. by 10 years, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that place. Thank you. Ben yeah. Marcus, thank, thank you, you for coming to the new school. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Benjamin Marcus and Oren Slosberg. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.